Hey, cuz, welcome to a new episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs. And today, we're checking out the greatest hits of planet Earth. How good it is. Hi there, I'm Claude Cole, and this is a very special edition of the show, entirely supported by you, the listener, through your generous financial support of the show. The planet we live on is very small compared to others that we know about. The star that it orbits is considered to be medium in size, and that star is part of a galaxy of perhaps a hundred billion other stars, collected in a shape much like we picture a flying saucer, a more or less flat disk with a bulge in the middle. Our sun is maybe two-thirds of the way out from the center of this galaxy, and that galaxy is one of many, many more in a universe just too huge for the human mind to truly comprehend. I once saw a comparison that if the Milky Way galaxy, that's the one we're living in, if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of a record album, our entire solar system would be no larger than a single atom. And yet, and yet, back in the 1970s, NASA scientists took it upon themselves to assemble a project that involved putting together a message that they hoped would be an interstellar version of the Who's shouting, We are here from the dust speck atop Horton's Thistle. Not only did they put together a message to send out into the universe, they did it twice. Of course, I'm talking about Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 which were launched in August and September of 1977. Between their launch and around 1999, they spent their time doing flybys of some of the other planets in the solar system, sending photos back and using the planet's gravity wells to pick up some additional speed. In 2012, the Voyagers passed through something called the Termination Shock, which is generally considered the end of the solar system. They're still sending some information back to Earth, although as I record this, it takes over 21 and a half hours for the signal to get here from Voyager 1 and about 18 hours from Voyager 2. Uh, part of the difference is the gap between the launches, but it's also worth noting that they're uh, moving in different directions at roughly right angles to one another by now. Around the year 2030, they will run out of power and they're just going to drift unless someone or something happens to find them one day. The people who put the Voyager project together figured that the spacecraft needed something to indicate things like our point of origin and what kind of being sent this probe out. And they brought in some hugely deep thinkers to determine what that something would be. And ultimately, they came up with the Golden Record. The committee that put together the Golden Record was chaired by Dr. Carl Sagan at Cornell University. Sagan had a great reverence for things scientific, and he was the host of the original Cosmos series, on PBS back in the late 1970s. They put together 115 images and recorded a bunch of natural sounds, including greetings from humans in 55 different languages, plus printed messages from President Carter and Kurt Waldheim, the Secretary General of the United Nations. They also added musical selections from many different cultures and eras. In an article in the New Yorker magazine, Timothy Ferris says he tried to recruit John Lennon for the project, but tax problems meant that Lennon had to leave the country temporarily. However, Lennon still managed to help with the project. First, he recommended that they use Jimmy Iovine to help with the mastering of the record, and second, Ferris was inspired by Lennon's bit of etching images into the blank spaces in a record's runout groove. Now, for you kiddies, the runout groove is the empty space between where a song ends and the needle simply runs over and over again in the same spot at the end of the record. So, for instance, on some copies of the Let It Be album, the words Phil and Ronnie are etched into the runout area. On the 45 of some copies of Lennon's hit Just Like Starting Over, Lennon wrote One World, One People. So, Ferris did the same thing on Voyager's runout area. He added, quote, To all the makers of music, all worlds, all times, unquote. Unfortunately, that etched message created a problem at NASA. It turns out that NASA has someone called an agency compliance officer whose job it is to ensure that each of the Voyager's 65,000 parts were up to spec. 
When the compliance officer discovered that there was nothing in the blueprints regarding an inscription, the records were rejected, and NASA got ready to put blank disks in their place. According to Ferris, it was only after Dr. Sagan appealed to the NASA administrator, pointing out that the inscription would be the one and only example of human handwriting on Voyager, that they got the okay to use the records as they were. But for the team that had curated and assembled the record, it was a very stressful two-week period. The records themselves were etched in copper and then uh, plated with gold. And finally, they were sealed in aluminum cases. Also inside the cases are a cartridge and a needle so the record can be played. On the outside of the case is symbolic language, which includes the drawing of the record and the stylus demonstrating how to play the records from the beginning. The case also contains binary math that demonstrates the correct time for one rotation of the record. The record was designed to turn at 16 and two-thirds revolutions per minute, so they gave up a little bit of fidelity, especially at the high end, in order to pack in more information on the disc itself. There's also information which shows how the images can be extracted from the disc. There's also a drawing of a pulsar map which shows the location of our solar system with respect to 14 pulsars whose precise pulse or periods are demonstrated. And there's also a drawing of a hydrogen atom uh, in its two lowest states with a connecting line and the numeral one which indicates that the time interval from the transition from one state to the other state would be used as the fundamental time scale for all of the information on the disk. Although an earlier probe, Pioneer, had line drawings of human beings on a plaque on its side, the fact that they were both nude and anatomically correct created some controversy. People were actually worried that NASA was trying to send pornography into space. Consequently, they chose not to include photographs of a nude man and woman on the record. Instead, they used an image by John Lomberg called Diagram of Vertebrate Evolution, which does depict anatomically correct people perhaps with just a little more detail than the Pioneer plaque. Now, as interesting as that and the other 114 pictures are, this is, after all, a music show, so let's talk about the audio tracks on the Golden Record. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. This is the start of about 45 seconds of UN Secretary General Kurt, Kurt Waldheim's greeting. And from here we move to greetings from other people from around the world. There are 55 different languages represented before we return to English. Milí přátelé, přejeme vám vše nejlepší. Namaste. Kannadi gara paravagi subhashegalu. Sab logo ne maro ram ram pohunche. Hame athe raji khushi ha. Hello from the children of planet Earth. That last voice, so far as I could tell, was the only child's voice that appears on the recording. It's the voice of Nick Sagan, Carl's Sagan's son, but Carl had nothing to do with it. It was actually his mother, Linda Saltzman Sagan, who arranged for Nick to make the recording. You see, she was the one who pulled all the greetings together, and when it came to English, she gave it to Nick. Nick, for his part, was only six years old at the time, and he didn't know why he was saying what he said. From there, we move into track three, which has two interesting things going on. Listen in for a minute. See, this committee, good for we... My dear friends in outer space... As you probably know, my country is situated on the west coast of the continent of Africa, a landmass more or less in the shape of a question mark in the center of a... Dar committee istifadehis, sulchuyane as fazaye mavaray jaf, iftikhar daram, shad bashay mardom iran... Nistrebas vivi en pazzo, kun la popoloi de la tuta mondo... Okay, so first you might have noticed that this track was engineered so that the greetings from various UN members ping-pong between the left and the right channels. But you may have also noticed a peculiar noise going on in the background. Där härskar lagarna för värdars värld. 
That's the sound of humpback whales, to which the greetings eventually give way until we hear only the whales. Carl Sagan strongly believed, and subsequent research, especially since his death in 1996, has borne out that whale songs carry much more information than we suspect. And as a result, there's no reason to think that whale song is any more or less decipherable than human speech. Here's a clip of Sagan himself talking about it. If I imagine that the songs of the humpback whale are sung in a tonal language, then the number of bits of information in one song is about the same as the information content of the Iliad or the Odyssey. Track 4 is a kind of sonic collage assembled by Timothy Ferris and his wife, Andrewian, with a lot of the audio collected firsthand by Linda Sagan. The track is called The Sounds of Earth. They began with a short piece called The Music of the Spheres, which took the orbital velocities of the solar system's planets and converted them into sounds. The math that they used was based on the work of Johannes Kepler back in the 1500s. From there, we move into an audio representation of the evolution of the planet from the volcanoes and such of the planet's early history, then into the first rains and the formation of the oceans, and then to the emergence of life, all the way up to the modern day, including the sound of a launching Saturn V rocket. And it finally ends with a crying baby and his mother, then this. started off with a recording of Andrewian's brainwaves and then finally the sounds of a pulsar. Now because human civilization is a relative blip in the lifetime of the earth, there was a decision to run this timeline logarithmically so that human activity actually begins about halfway through. This brings us to the actual musical portion of the record. Ferris notes that he wanted to include music that had a mathematical component, and what better music to represent this than the Brandenburg concertos from Johann Sebastian Bach. Ferris's reasoning was that it's possible that whatever alien life encounters this might not have hearing in the conventional sense, so our sense of rhythm might be different from theirs. But it wasn't all meant to be hard and sciencey stuff. This is a piece called a Ketawang, and it's titled Puspawarna, which means 
kinds of flowers. It comes from Indonesia, and its composition is generally attributed to uh, Prince Mangkunegara IV of Surakatra, who reigned in the mid-1800s. The lyrics refer to nine different flowers, but these flowers actually represent each of the prince's nine wives. Nowadays, the music is traditionally used to introduce the prince, the same way Americans use Hail to the Chief for their president. Seven comes from the Mahi musicians of the West African nation of Benin. It's a basic percussion piece, and unfortunately, I couldn't find out much about it other than its origin, and that is titled uh, Sengunmi. track is called Alima Song, and it's per- performed by the indigenous Mubuti people of the Ituri Rainforest in the Northeastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, that's in Sub-Saharan Africa. Track 9, a piece called Barnum Beer and McCoy Song. Barnum Beer translates to Morning Star. For the Aborigines of Australia, Barnum Beer is the creator spirit who is believed to have led the first people to Australia. She's also identified with the planet Venus, and her song line is common to the different peoples there, which allowed different tribes in Australia to communicate with one another.
Track 10 is a mariachi song called El Cascabel, but it's a more complex piece than what you typically think of as mariachi music. El Cascabel means the little bell, and it was composed by the Mexican musician Lorenzo Barcelata. Track 11 is the sole rock and roll track on the golden record. It's Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry. Now you might be wondering why there's only one rock song on the album, considering that rock has been around in one form or another for 60 years or more. But it's important to note that first, rock had only been around a little over 20 years at that point, and second, the intent was to capture all of humanity's musical contributions up until that time. There's just so much good stuff, and you only have about 90 minutes to cram it all in. So of course, a lot, a lot of stuff is going to get left behind. For track 12, we have a piece from New Guinea called Maria Mangi, which was recorded in 1964. It's a traditional folk song, but it's also the name of an ancestral being connected to a specific clan and a living human being. This actually created a problem later on. In this case, the uh, Nayara people did not give consent for this piece to be used on the record, and the symbolic removal of Mario Mangi from their space has led to political issues. There's a fascinating scholarly article from 2019 titled Lost in Space, Nayara Music, Politics of Place, and the Voyager Recordings, which outlines the problems that can arise when a possession leaves its traditional space. In fact, it occurs to me now that maybe I'm just making matters worse by playing this here. There's a soft firewall on that article, incidentally, but the account you have to set up is free. From here, we move to Japan and a piece called Sokaku Reibo, which translates to depicting the cranes in their nest. It describes the life of the cranes from their birth and the time of their being raised by their parents to the flight of the young from the nest and the eventual death of the parent cranes. That flutter you hear on the bamboo flute is called koro koro, and it's meant to imitate both the voice and the wing flapping of the birds. It's frequently played in komuso temples, but it's considered artistic rather than ceremonial or ritualistic. And at five minutes and change, it's one of the longer pieces on the record. Now, I'm 
not sure why this piece is here, because we've already heard from Johann Sebastian Bach, but track 14 is his Partita for Violin Solo number 3 in E major, specifically the third movement, which is called Gavotte en Rondeau. Most people are familiar with the first movement, the Preludio, which I'm not going to play here because it's not on the Golden Record. Anyway, it's performed by Arthur Grumio, a Belgian musician who is considered one of the few genuine violin virtuosi of the 20th century. I'm not complaining, however, because it's a beautiful piece. Track 15 is an excerpt from Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute. It's from Act 2, the aria called Hell's Vengeance Boils in My Heart. This particular recording is Etta Moser as the Queen of the Night, with the Bavarian State Opera providing the instrumental support. last track on side one is called Chakrulo. It comes from Georgia, the country, not the state, and it's a polyphonic choral folk song in which the singers are supposed to be preparing for battle. And as I mentioned just now, that's the end of side one. This is where the run-out groove takes place, and it's also where that troublesome inscription appears on the record. But let's not delay, onward to side two. Track 17 is called Roncadores and Drums, and all I could find out about it is that it's from the uh, Ancash region of Peru. Unfortunately, all my web searches led me right back to Voyager, though I did learn that a Roncadores is also a drum. It's a very big drum. Track 18 comes from Louis Armstrong and his Hot 7, and it dates back to the late 1920s. It's this early material that really revealed Armstrong's genius as a musician.
Track 19 is called Mugam. It's performed by Kamil Jalilov on the Balaban. Uh, Mugam is a folk piece from Azerbaijan, which combines classical forms with improvisation. This is a relatively short piece for Mugam, which typically involves more players basically spurring each other into more intensive playing as they go along. from a ballet, specifically The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. And if you're not familiar with this piece, it might not sound like a ballet to you. That was pretty much the reaction when the piece premiered too back in 1913. Both the music uh, by Stravinsky and the choreography by Vaslav Nijinsky were so avant-garde for their time that the Parisian audience literally broke out into a riot. returns to Bach yet again with Prelude and Fugue number one from the Well-Tempered Clavier, book two, as performed by Glenn Gould. I don't have any good stories about riots breaking out over Bach's music, but Bach was kind of out of favor by the time he died in 1750, so it wasn't until about 50 years later that somebody published a printed copy of the Well-Tempered Clavier. Before that, only copies that were circulating were handwritten. And with that, we come to the longest piece on the golden record, and it's arguably one of the most famous pieces of music ever. Of course, it's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in C minor, Opus 67. This is the first movement of the symphony called Allegro con Brio, and it's performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra with Otto Klemperer as the conductor. Did you know that there's a lot of debate among conductors with regard to how those first four notes are supposed to be played? Part of that controversy stems from the markings that Beethoven himself played on the sheet music. So some of them will do it as da-da-da-da, and some people will elongate a little bit dun 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 like that now track 23 is interesting to me anyway it's called Isil Ye Delio Heidutin and it's a folk song from the Rodopi Mountains of Bulgaria it's about a rebel leader from around the year 1700 named Delio, who is considered unkillable. 
It's a story of a resistance to an outside invader. This version is sung by Valya Balkanska, who is very well known locally, but outside Bulgaria, she's mostly known for her appearance on the Golden Record. This song represents the sound of agricultural communities, the first people who regularly had enough food to eat. gives us a piece called Navajo Night Chant, a Yebai Che Dance. It's performed by Ambrose Rowan Horse, Chester Rowan, and Tom Rowan. The Yebai Che are supernatural beings who created the Navajo people and taught them how to live in harmony with the universe. In the Yebai Che ceremony, a person is meant to be healed through sweating in a small sweat lodge or by placing the person on a spot previously heated by a fire and then they're covered up with heavy blankets. The ceremony often goes on for nine days. This track is called The Fairy Round, and it's composed by Anthony Holborn, about whom almost nothing is known. He composed music around the time of Queen Elizabeth I, and he he was held in high regard, but almost anything about him that isn't related to his compositions is unknown to modern scholars. This particular piece was recorded by David Munro on original instruments, which means that the instruments themselves were made the same way today that they were constructed hundreds of years ago. Track 26 is called Nara Naratana Kukuku. It's from the Solomon Islands, and the name translates to the cry of the megapode bird. What's interesting about this piece is that nobody on the Voyager team knew a lot about it until just a few years ago. A man named David Peskovitz was doing some research on the Golden Record, and at the time the record was made, this track was called simply Solomon Islands Panpipes. So, Peskovitz called the SIBC, the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, which is where the recording was first made to see what they had on it. Unfortunately, they didn't really have much. Peskovitz's next step was to contact musicologists and anthropologists in the area. One of those was a communications professor named Martin Hadlow, who had spent a lot of time at the SIBC. While he didn't really know anything, several months later, he visited the SIBC and just happened to mention the Voyager recording. A young woman overheard the conversation and told him that she was related to the original musicians. A few weeks later, Peskovitz met with Isaac Smith Humawai, uh, the leader of the group that recorded the song. So today the song is correctly labeled Nara Narantana Kukoku, as performed by the Maniasemai and Tomataro chieftain tribe of Oloha and Palasu'u village community in small Malaita. So let's listen in on that track. Thank you. 
we're up to track 27, and it's called simply Wedding Song, but that really oversimplifies it. It's sung by a young girl from Juan Cavelica in Peru, and she's sad because she married too young. Unfortunately, we don't know her name, which is a huge pity. But writer Anthony Michael Morena contacted John Cohen, the musicologist who recorded the piece, in an effort to find out. Cohen didn't know her name either, but he did relate this story to Morena, and I quote, My wife Penny and I went briefly to Juan Cavaglica in July or August 1964. We had fallen in with some Peace Corps people in Juan Cayo, and they sent us to Karen Bundy, also Peace Corps. Her project in Juan Cavaglica was working with some young ladies, teens, doing traditional spinning of wool. When we visited her place, a second or third floor apartment, we made the recording of the girls there. When we were recording the song of marriage, there was a commotion in the hall outside the apartment. Apparently, the girl's mother was concerned about what was happening. Karen did the translation. Penny wrote it down. Because the song ends up with the wedding, it became known as a song of marriage, and somehow that morphed into wedding song. The repeated chorus says, What a fool I was, stupid fool. This appealed to Penny because it expressed a reality rarely discussed. I love the performance and the feeling it generated. We never had any real interchange with the singer. She was just one of the several girls who sang for us during that brief visit. I was moved that the song was so well understood by the young singer. Perhaps for her, it was a warning rather than of something she had experienced. She was young, maybe 13, unquote. So in the end, it's actually a rather heartbreaking piece. Here's track 27, Wedding Song. Track 28 is called Liu Shui, which is Mandarin for flowing streams. It goes back to at least the 1400s, and it's being played here on a seven-string bridgeless zither by a virtuoso of the instrument named Quan Ping Hu. It's the only sample of Chinese music on the golden record, although some scholars of the genre think it's a little on the showy side because it's technically complicated. Consequently, some consider it not especially valuable for the study of Chinese music. Track 29 called Jat Kahan Ho from India. It was written and performed by Kesarbai Kirkar. From a formal standpoint, this particular raga is designated for morning performance, but it's become popular enough to be used as a closing number regardless of the time of day. It's said that Kesarbai was suspicious of the recording medium, considering it a compromise on the art of the raga because of the limited time available on a record. Now, this was in the 1930s. So records were still at 78 RPM, and the records themselves were 10 inches wide, so they only held about mm, three minutes per side. But around 1935, she finally caved and recorded some of her music. Coincidentally, she died in 1977, just a couple of weeks after the second Voyager was launched.
Timothy Ferris has long maintained that this track was his first suggestion for the record. Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson is about having nowhere to sleep on a cold night. But listen carefully and you realize it has very little in the way of lyrics. It's one of my favorite tracks ever. Dark was the night, cold was the ground is also the impetus for one of the more inspirational quotations from the TV show The West Wing, and it wasn't even written by Aaron Sorkin. It's from a season five episode written by Peter Noah that aired in February of 2004, around the time that Voyager crossed the termination shock. In this scene, Joshua Lyman is looking for a convincing argument to authorize funding for a manned mission to Mars, and he needs something inspirational. Uh, Voyager, in case it's ever encountered by extraterrestrials, is carrying photos of life on Earth, greetings in 55 languages, and a collection of music from Gregorian chants to Chuck Berry, including Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by 20s bluesman Blind Willie Johnson whose stepmother blinded him at seven by throwing lye in his eyes after his father beat her for being with another man. He died penniless of pneumonia after sleeping bundled in wet newspapers in the ruins of his house that burned down. But his music just left the solar system. We're up to the last track, track 31. And as someone who appreciates a good closing track, I think this one qualifies. It's Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 13 in B-flat major, the fifth movement, which is called Cavatina. Beethoven never witnessed a performance of this piece in its finished form. After part of the first performance got negative reviews, he made changes to the last movement and it didn't premiere until a month after he died. Now, the people who put the Golden Record together had always assumed that it would be commercially released at some point, but they ran into some weird conflicts within the record industry. What most people heard, 
between then and now were bootlegs that came from some copies that Tim Ferriss had made and given to a few of his friends. In 1992, a CD came out that was also based on Ferriss's analog tapes, but without his participation, but that didn't last very long. It was released by Warner New Media, and you might be able to find it on eBay and such, but don't count on it too heavily. But then in 2016, Ferris was approached by David Peskovitz. Remember him? He's the guy who figured out the story behind the wedding song. He and his colleague, Tim Daly, wanted to put together a reissue of the album, but done right this time. They got over a million dollars in funding on Kickstarter in just a few weeks, and they brought Ferris back into the studio to get his participation on a re-release. Peskovitz and Daly took the time to contact the artists represented on the record and get the stories behind their participation, and that's how he got the story of the Peruvian girl. In addition to making that correction, they discovered that track three was from Benin, not Senegal, as originally reported, and they learned the names of the Navajo chanters. So as a result, you can buy a copy of the Golden Record as it originally sounded in 1977. It's available through Ozma Records, O-Z-M-A, and while the website says it's both on vinyl and CD, the CD is sold out every time I look, so I don't know if they've stopped production. All the tracks I played for you here come directly from the vinyl LPs. Will the Voyager spacecraft ever be found by someone? Of course, it's impossible to know one way or the other, but... There's a strange bit of comfort knowing that there's some record of our existence out there. And because of its component materials, it can last for thousands of years, maybe even longer. So if anyone's going to find it, they've got plenty of time to do it in. And until then, we'll keep on looking and listening and reaching for those stars, hoping someone will realize we are here. And that, my friend, is a full lid on this very special edition of How Good It Is. I hope you enjoyed this show because it's your generosity that made it possible. By now you know the drill. You can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram uh, at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash Pod. I would love some feedback on the social media for this episode. If you have an idea for a patron-only episode, by all means, get in touch and I'll see what can be done with your idea. Thanks for listening and supporting me. I'll talk to you soon. Hi.